You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, you guys. And morning, kiddos. Glad you guys are joining us today. Glad you're here. Good to see you. Yeah, you can wave from the front row. You guys are sitting in the front row. Nobody ever sits in the front row. This is the best. Well done. Thank you for sitting in the front. Gets me hyped. Ah, uh, You guys, when we hear the word sin, as modern Western people, we often have one of two immediate responses. We either laugh or we get nervous. We laugh because the way that we use sin in our culture is often in a humorous and ironic way. Advertisers, for instance, will use it to describe how good something is. Chocolate isn't just delicious, it's sinfully sweet. The other day, I was hanging out with my neighbors, Emily and I both were, and we were having a meal with them and swimming in the pool, and they said, hey, you guys want some drinks? We're like, yeah, that sounds great. And so they brought us a couple drinks, and they brought me a cider, and the cider that they brought me was literally named Original Sin. It's amazing, which is also, it was delicious, by the way, like really, really good. Also hilarious that the pastor drank original sin. Like I was like, this is, you can't write this. But that's how we deal with sin in our culture a lot of the time. It's a joke. It's ironic. It's funny. But then when someone like me stands up in front of a room and starts to treat sin seriously, we get a little nervous. For many of us, the word and idea of sin has been abused or manipulated or just created legitimately painful and unhealthy experiences in our lives. And because of that, we just kind of want to get rid of the idea, push it to the fringes, let's leave that archaic religious language in the past. In fact, that's one of the great things that our culture loves to brag about. Our culture tends to believe that one of its greatest accomplishments is the fact that we don't guilt trip people. Everyone just kind of does what they want to do. They get to decide what's right and wrong for them, and that's great for you, and well, I get to do what's great for me. It's a choose-your-own-adventure story. Follow your heart, And so long as everyone is consenting, then everything is fair game. Our culture has taught us that true life and true freedom and true fullness come when we rid ourselves of things like sin and guilt and the rest. So if you're feeling ashamed or guilty, that's just part of an oppressive religious structure that you've inherited. And you need to cast that thing off. And then you'll find freedom. Freedom comes when you get rid of these sorts of words and language. And so standing up in front of a room and talking about sin in a serious way It's like the wedding DJ who kills the good vibes with a slow song in the middle of the reception, right? Everything was 24 karat magic and a tasteful throwback of September by Earth, Wind, and Fire, and then, well, the pastor came and killed the vibes, right? (laughs) We've done everything we can to remove the notion of guilt and sin from our lives because we think, we think, that will give us true freedom. But there's also an interesting contradiction in our culture about the way we deal with sin. See, even in the middle of this apparently enlightened and post-religious and anti-guilt and pro-freedom culture, we also universally recognize that the world is messed up and that we often contribute to how messed up it is. Whether it's abuses of power or racism or selfishness or pride or greed, we all recognize that there is something deathly wrong with us and with our world. No one in this room showed up today thinking everything is sunshine and rainbows in the world. And that notion that brokenness and sin is pervasive in the world, that's actually something that most people throughout most of history have agreed upon independent of their philosophy or religion. For instance, these words from a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, who was an anti-Christian 
an atheist. He said, man is the cruelest animal. Nietzsche seems to think that there's something wrong with our condition. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, a pantheist, not a Christian, said, truth and untruth often coexist. Good and evil often are found together. And then Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian author, he became a Christian later in life. When he, when he wrote these words, he wasn't. He said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Even those of us who think we are free and liberated from things like sin know and feel the weight of sin and brokenness all the time in our lives, even when we don't want to admit it. The great novelist Franz Kafka put it this way, the state we find ourselves in is sinful, quite independent of guilt. And if you really want to see this at, own, at play in your own heart, in your own head, in your own mind, just pay attention to how quick your instinct is to hide things in your life. How quick you are to hide thoughts or behaviors or actions. Think about it right now. If we suddenly had the ability to put up on the screen your lifetime internet browsing history, how does that make you feel? Probably want to hide, right? Imagine that we had access to a recording of every comment you made about someone else in the last year and that everyone in this room could hear it. You want to hide, right? Why is it that so many of our worst nightmares are about being found out? Why is it that so many of our worst nightmares are we show up naked to school and we're completely exposed? Even when we're not religious, even when we're supposedly free from religious guilt, we still often know that there's something wrong with us. That's why we go and hide. And many of us spend most of our waking hours hiding, covering ourselves, covering our brokenness and our messiness. It's in our clothing, it's in our social media accounts, it's in our makeup, it's in our hair, it's in our career aspirations, it's in our family projections, it's in our social circles, it's in the way we virtue signal to other people. So much of it is a covering act. We want to control other people's perception of us. Because if everyone really knew what was going on underneath, if everyone really knew who I was, they'd reject me, or I'd feel deep, deep shame and guilt. Our instinct is to hide, and that shows us the truth that we know something's wrong with us. We're sinful people. And we often feel captive to feelings of shame and guilt and hiding because of it. I can remember one of the first times in my life that this became true for me, where I realized this in myself. It happened in early elementary school. I was hanging out with a buddy of mine named Dave. And Dave, you should know, was one of those kids who kind of did things and then asked questions later. So Dave would like light things on fire to see what would happen. Or he'd build machines with like sharp metal objects. Uh, one time in high school, to give you like the ultimate picture of Dave, he built, not exaggerating, a 10-foot tall catapult. Like what you'd use to storm a castle in medieval times. He just built one. And then he said, you know what would be a good idea? Let's put a five-pound weight in the catapult and launch it down our street. And we did. Went 100 yards, the dent is still in the asphalt. So that's Dave. That's the guy I'm hanging out with. One of my best buddies. And on this day, back in elementary school, our activity was pretty benign in comparison to launching projectiles hundreds of yards in the air. Uh, we just wanted to play some basketball. But there was a snag. His older sister's car was parked in the driveway near the hoop. And she had explicitly asked us not to shoot hoops because her car was there until she left a few minutes later. But Dave wasn't concerned about her car, so I wasn't concerned. Dave's confidence was somehow instilled in me that day. And so we grabbed some strawberry frosted Pop-Tarts for our electrolytes and fuel while we played basketball. <laughs> we went outside, and we started shooting hoops. And he had, as many of you have seen on basketball hoops, that little plastic 
like automatic return device. So you don't have to go chase, it's amazing. You don't have to chase the ball around. So I put up the first shot, I make it, it comes right back to me. Dave puts up a shot, he makes it, it comes right back to him. Then I put up the third shot, and this one went in slow motion. It bounced off the back of the rim. It went huge, high up into the air. It bounced off the concrete, and then right onto the driver's side windshield of his sister's car. Predictable in this story, right? As soon as I said this, or her car was parked there, you all knew this is, this is what's going to happen. And so Dave and I were frozen. We look at each other, and then we silent, silently agree never to speak of this again. And so we take our half-eaten Pop-Tarts, we run inside, and we flip on his Nintendo 64 and start playing Mario Kart to forget the whole thing happened. Bowser for the win, right? <laughs> and after about 20 to 30 minutes of firing Koopa shells and throwing banana peels at each other on a cartoon racetrack, we had largely forgotten about the windshield. It had slipped through our mind. The guilt and shame that we might have felt, it was gone. We left it in the past until Dave's sister left the house. She walks outside, we hear her close the door on the way out, and seconds later she comes back in screaming one word, David! And I can still hear it in my mind, clearly. Because when that scream echoed off the walls of the house, my heart sank into the floor. For one of the first times in my life, dread and shame and guilt welled up in me. Do you see what had happened? All my effort to hide my failure all my effort to ignore or pretend like my failure wasn't a failure, like my sin wasn't a sin, it might have provided me some short-term forgetfulness, but it didn't help me resolve the reality of what was true in my heart. It did not lead me to wholeness and life, and it actually led me to crippling shame and brokenness when that thing was exposed. And I can play that example for last, but I think that experience is one that many of us feel in our spiritual lives often. We try to follow Jesus, we try to live a life of love for our neighbors, and in one way or another, we fail. We blow it. It happens. And sometimes our failures come up surprisingly. It's like the relational version of a basketball bouncing into a windshield. Right? We're just feeling angry, and all of a sudden that anger wells up in us towards someone we love. Or we're driving our car, and we say some things that we can't believe were really in us about the person who cut us off. Or we use the word literally when we meant figuratively. Like all sorts of things that just slip out of us. right? But sometimes... I saw people pointing fingers with that literally figuratively one. That hit a nerve for some people. But sometimes our failures aren't accidental. Sometimes they're really intentional. Maybe it's a decision you made in the spur of the moment that you regret later on. Maybe it's the intentional wishing of harm upon someone else for your benefit. Maybe it's something you knew was wrong before you did it, you knew it was wrong when you were doing it, and you knew it was wrong after, but you did it anyway. Friends, all of us, in our own heads, in our own hearts, in our own bodies, we know that oftentimes we just aren't very good at being human. That's the reality of our lives. We fail to love others and love God well. And hiding isn't helping. Trying to pretend like our failures aren't failures, trying to pretend like our sins aren't sins, isn't helping. And so that should spark a question in us. How do we deal with our failures well? How do we deal with our failures well? When we know we've messed up, when we know we've failed, when we know it's our fault, how do we process that? How do we work through it in such a way that we don't come out on the other side, people hidden and ashamed? How do we process it in such a way that we come out on the other side with real life? We come out on the other side stronger, with more power and joy than we did going in. How do we take the fractured pieces of our lives and restore them? As it turns out, we actually get an answer to those sorts of questions right in the middle 
of our scriptural library in this book called the Psalms. This book, it's a collection of 150 poems and prayers, and they serve as a guide through the myriad experiences of the human condition. Pain and shame and guilt and loss and grief and lament and sin, brokenness, failure. They navigate all of that, and then they chart a path for us to wholeness and life on the other side of them. And so this morning, we get to explore Psalm 32 together. We learn how it teaches us to respond to our failures in such a way that it doesn't lead us to woundedness, but to healing. We see this through the practice of confession that Gabby just led us all in. We get real details on what confession looks like in this passage. It shows us three main things in the psalm. We learn here the reason for confession, the outline of confession, and the freedom we feel through confession. The reason for it, the outline of it, and the freedom through it. So friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me uh, to Psalm 32. The book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. So if you're flipping there towards the middle, you'll probably land near Psalms. Psalm 32 is where we're going to be. We're going to read the whole thing together. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Psalm 32. Of David, a mascal. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The very first word of this psalm, it's a common one that many of us are familiar with. It's the word blessed. Or if you're like fancy and religious, people say blessed, which is always funny to me because we never say it that way in real life, right? No one's saying like, blessed be my day today, right? Blessed was my day. But blessed, blessed, however you say it, that's the first word here. It's one many of us think we're familiar with, but it gets really overused in our culture to the point where we don't actually capture, I don't think, the fullness of it in our heads and hearts when we hear it. To be blessed in the scripture isn't just to say, oh, I have some good things going on. To be blessed in the scriptures refers to a sense of complete wholeness and wellness in our beings. It refers to profound fulfillment. And notice the person who feels this sense of blessedness in their lives. Who does David say it's for? The one who's forgiven. What David is saying is that the most fulfilled life, the most free and full life, is experienced and known by the one who knows they've done wrong, who knows deeply their flaws, and knows they have forgiveness for them. 
Someone who's aware of their failures, who rightly acknowledges them, and who knows they have forgiveness for those things. That is what true, free, full life looks like. And Jesus, by the way, echoes the same sort of thing in his ministry. In Luke chapter 7, he's having a conversation with a guy named Simon. Simon was a religious leader who was very put together and proper and cordial. And suddenly, in their meal and conversation, a woman who's very loud, boisterous, kind of bursts in, and she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And Simon, he's naturally a bit taken aback by this woman's overly emotional expression towards Jesus and her boundary-crossing love for him. And Jesus immediately rebukes Simon. He says, Simon, this woman, she's actually filled with life and joy and goodness and compassion way more than what you're experiencing, and here's why. She knows her sins and knows she's been forgiven. She knows her sins and she knows she's been forgiven, and she's experiencing full, abundant, free life because the one who is forgiven little loves little. What David and Jesus are making clear is that the most free people, the most loving people, the most fulfilled people, the most compassionate people are those who know that they have been forgiven the most. The scriptures remind us that really there's three different ways to live when it comes to our failure. The first way to live is to believe that we actually don't really fail all that much, that we don't really need forgiveness. Most of us in this room would say, oh, I'm not perfect, right? But I'm pretty good. I'm definitely better than those people or that person. And you know what? I actually don't know that I need a whole lot of forgiveness. I'm pretty set the way that I am. I have my life mostly put together. And that view, friends, eventually, in the short term or the long term, it will lead us to become judgmental and prideful people because it means we are always comparing ourselves to others. We are always putting ourselves on a scale and then ranking ourselves above others. Either consciously or subconsciously, we will condemn others or kind of push them to the side in order to maintain our own self-worth. And then, when we inevitably do encounter failure in our lives, which will happen, when that inevitably happens, we're going to have to go into hiding to deal with it. Because we've lived a life that says, well, I don't really need all that much forgiveness. I'm pretty good. But then when the failure comes up, we have to say, well, I've got to maintain my image. I've got to control the perception of others. We become people who hide. And therefore, we can't experience real, true life, love, peace. That's the first way. The scriptures say you can deal with your failure. You can ignore it, but it's going to lead you to become a certain type of person. There's a second way, though, you can deal with your failure. And it won't lead you to life either. The second way is to believe that we're too far gone and that actually no amount of forgiveness could really heal us, could really bring us life. Many of us look across our lives and we have so many checkered pasts or sins that we've hidden and buried and covered up and that we're ashamed of and we think, man, if people really knew this, if people really knew who I was and what I'd done, if that came out into the open, I'd get rejected, for sure. I could not really be known and loved. Known and loved? No. So I have to put on a mask, and I have to pretend like I'm someone I'm not, and I have to hide all my stuff. Believing that forgiveness can't come to us is another way that we hide, and it's another way that we're unable to be fully known and loved. There's a woman I know who was raised in a family that pushed her towards success in really unhealthy ways. To the point where she could never quite live up to her parents' expectations. And when she failed, she didn't know what to do with it. It was crippling for her. And when she thinks about the forgiveness of God, when she approaches God, she can't get beyond that. Because she has been taught that her failures define her. She has been taught that she needs to succeed. And she knows that she hasn't, and so she finds it really hard to approach God. It's really hard to believe this sort of thing. And so she has to hide. She doesn't feel like she has comfort and space to be fully known. 
Because if we have too high a view of ourselves, if we believe that we don't need to be forgiven, or if we have too low, low a view of ourselves, if we believe we really can't be forgiven, then we will never find the joyful and passionate and happy life that Jesus has for us. Blessed is the one who knows they need to be forgiven and knows they've got it. And here's one of the major practical implications of that truth. That's exactly the opposite of how many of us are taught to think about the spiritual and religious life. Most of us think that spiritual and religious maturity is about being put together. That's why we show up to church and we try to look great for everyone. We smile, even though maybe we were fighting at home, because we want to put on a good face. We think that spiritual and religious maturity is about being put together, about having your ducks in a row. And that means that we think maturity comes when we confess less. But it's actually the opposite of what Jesus and David are saying. True spiritual maturity is not confessing less. It's actually a deeper awareness of our faults and then an increased willingness to bring them before God anytime we see them. Maturity is not about sinning less. It's about closing the gap between when you sin and when you seek forgiveness. That's what real maturity looks like. It's confessing more, not confessing less. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, when a person is getting better, they understand more and more clearly the evil that is in them. When a person is getting worse, they understand their own badness less and less. When we're getting better, we understand more and more clearly the junk that we need to confess, that we need to be forgiven of, and that we need to see changed. That's what maturity looks like, so we'll do it more, not less. I mean, look at the guy who wrote this psalm, David. Remember David? It's a guy who the scriptures say is a man after God's own heart, right? And that is his title because he's so morally put together. Yeah? No, not a chance. David lied, committed adultery and rape, murdered to cover it all up, and consistently battled pride throughout his life. That's the man after God's own heart. The scriptures are not telling us that he's a man after God's own heart because he's a great moral exemplar. Don't live your life like much of David's life, friends. The reason he's a man after God's own heart is because he's deeply aware of his flaws and he brings them before God and confesses them and seeks forgiveness. He's a man after God's own heart because he knew he needed much forgiveness and he knew he had it. I like how Brennan Manning puts it in his book, Ruthless Trust. He says, anyone who God uses significantly is always deeply wounded. On the last day, Jesus will look us over, not for medals or diplomas or honors, but scars. Scars. So friends, the the reason we need confession is because we need forgiveness. That's why we do it. We need to be people who experience the accurate truth of who we are, that we are both holy and haunted people. And we need to be people who can be fully known in the midst of that identity and receive love. And confession is the means by which we practice that and experience it. Confession is the means by which we accurately view ourselves and then experience the true love we're made for. That's what confession is. Which begs the question, how do we do this, right? How do we confess well? Because I know I can speak for myself, and I think for many people in the room as well, it's sometimes hard to separate confession from the shameful self-image that we carry. Sometimes we come into confession, and we actually, well, it exposes all of the shame for us. And it's something that we don't really like. It makes us feel worse, not better. It leads us more to denigrate or degrade ourselves, condemn ourselves. So it doesn't feel like what David's talking about, this freeing feeling. So how do we do this? How do we do it well in such a way that it leads us to life, not to self-condemnation? 
And David actually gives us an outline for how to do this well in this psalm. It's in verse 5, this really tight and compact outline. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Loaded into that verse is a three-step process for how we approach confession in our lives. The first step is acknowledging. Just name what's true. Name it. Say it out loud. Write it down. Sometimes writing it down is easier than saying it out loud. But whatever it takes, name it. Review where things have gone wrong for you. A helpful image for me, I think, in approaching this. When you go into the doctor because you're sick, what's one of the first things the doctor has you do? Recite your symptoms. Tell them what's going wrong. You, as comprehensively and honestly as possible, inform the doctor of what you're feeling so that they can prescribe healing for you. And if you went into the doctor and you withheld symptoms, if you lied about symptoms, or you ignored symptoms, then you wouldn't really find true healing. Similarly, if you went into the doctor and you over-exaggerated your feelings, you might get treatment that's actually wrong for you. So you don't want to under-exaggerate. You don't want to over-exaggerate. You want to be truthful about what has happened, what symptoms you're feeling. Speak truthfully, accurately, and honestly. Acknowledge it. We start in confession to God the same way. We speak truthfully, accurately, and honestly about our symptoms, our brokenness. Don't minimize and don't exaggerate because either of those will be dishonest. George Buttrick, a famous pastor and theologian, put it this way. He says, true confession is neither self-condemnation. And this is a great line, he says. To be merciless with anyone, even ourselves, is no virtue. To be merciless with anyone, even ourselves, is no virtue. So don't be self-condemning, but don't casually evade either. Over-conscientiousness becomes morbid. Under-conscientiousness becomes indifference and decay. Be truthful. Acknowledge. And that's huge for navigating a lot of the shame and pain that we often bring into our confession, all of the condemnation that we do upon ourselves. Guys, sin, as outlined in the Bible, it's not a condemnation. It's a diagnosis. It's a condition that we have. In the same way that you confess your condition to your doctor, you do it in order to be healed. Confession is not a condemning act. It's a healing one. It's a checkup on where things have gone wrong in my heart, my head, my body, and how those things might need to change. That's the first thing. We acknowledge our sin. Step one. Step two, we stop covering. That's the second thing that David says. Not only does he acknowledge, but he uncovers. In our acknowledgement, we need to consider in the deepest parts of who we are where we might be hiding things, where we might be harboring things. What are the parts that I really don't want to get at in my heart? Uncover those. Because if you leave them buried, they're never going to find healing. If you leave them buried, they're just going to keep rotting in you. Another example of what this looks like. In the Levitt home, uh, things rarely go bad in the fridge because of one person. I won't say their name, but it rhymes with Shemily. (laughs) On a regular basis, Emily does fridge audits for us. She looks through everything in our fridge to make sure there's no rotting food or old food that's hanging around. And she doesn't do that out of shame or guilt. It's like, oh, we're terrible people for leaving this. It happens, right? It happens. She does it simply because it helps us remain healthy so that I don't go in and open up a Tupperware because I'd be stupid enough to eat old food and it'd make me sick. David here, he's telling us to do a fridge audit of our hearts. 
regularly take time to see what might be rotting, what might be going bad. Maybe you've had an angry streak that's been running through your life that's revealed itself in ugly sarcasm towards people. Uncover that. Maybe you've been dismissive of others. You haven't listened to them. You haven't prioritized them well. You've been seeking your benefit at their expense. Uncover that. Whatever it is, unpack the fridge. Get the rotting stuff out. Uncover. David acknowledges here what happens when we don't do this as well. Verses 3 and 4, he says, While I kept silent, that is, while I kept things covered up, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. When we don't uncover, when we don't do fridge audits, it will give our soul food poisoning. It will harm us eventually. So we have to bring these things up. That's the second step, uncover. And then the third step to confession is to confess. Real simple. After acknowledging, after uncovering, own what you've done. And by the way, own it in such a way that you don't add little like amendments to it. Sure, I did this, but, well, this person was mean to me, right? Okay, I responded this way, but X, Y, and Z happened. There's all these situations that made this a circumstantial sin, right? Just be honest. Say it. Don't add things to it. Confess. Tell the truth on yourself. And by the way, that word confess, that's all that means. Confess means to tell the truth. Biblically, confess is actually used in positive ways, too. People confess that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. People confess that Jesus is making all things new. That's a statement of truth. To confess something just means to say something's true. So say what's true. After you've acknowledged, after you've uncovered, say what's true. So often we load all these negative connotations into the word confession. All it means is to speak the truth. That's the flow of confession. Those are the three steps. But David also helps us by giving us some content. What is it that we confess about and for? In this outline, he uses three different words to describe the nature of sin and brokenness, failure in us. And that's actually a really helpful thing for us to remember. See, sin in the Bible, it's actually this really nuanced and robust idea. Most times, many of us, uh, because of sometimes unhealthy teaching, sometimes it's just the way that we've heard things, we've thought that sin is just about rules that God has somehow dropped on high. And those rules are things that we need to obey, and if we don't obey, then things go wrong. But we're not really given reasons for why we need to obey those things. They're just kind of listed for us. And so we start to get this picture of God as a moralistic and demanding figure. But that's actually not how the Bible perceives God or sin. Sin is not just the breaking of arbitrary rules. Remember what the Bible says about humanity, what humanity is, what we are. We are people who are designed to love, to love God, to love others, to love creation. That's our design. And so sin, in short, is the inhibition of love. Sin is the inhibition of love. It's anything that prevents or breaks holistic peace and flourishing and life for us and for the whole of creation. So it's more than breaking rules. And that means that we need some diverse language to describe the ways that we might have kind of gone out and inhibited love in another way, in one way or another. Uh, the first word that David uses here, it's in verse 1 and then in verse 5, he uses the word transgression. That's a specific word that's different than a couple of the other words. It's the Hebrew word pesha, and it refers to humanity's instincts towards rebellious self-assertion. It's those times where someone tells you not to do something and you say, well, I'm definitely doing that. Someone tells you not to cross a line, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to cross that line. Rebellious self-assertion, because you can't tell me what to do. 
And there's a famous theologian named Augustine who explores this idea in his book called The Confessions. He and a bunch of buddies were told not to go into a certain pear orchard, and so they went into the pear orchard. They went and stole pears. But here's the ironic thing. Augustine didn't like pears. He actually really didn't like them. He didn't think that this would be compelling at all. And he wasn't hungry when they went in. So after this, in reflecting on the incident, he's like, why? Why did I do this? Why did I do this stupid thing that I don't even really want? He said it's because he realized at the core of his being that he had this instinct that says, no one else gets to tell me how to live my life. Rebellious self-assertion. And that self-assertiveness, that transgression, that's part of our human nature. It's bent on getting what we want or think is best at the expense of everyone around us. It's the very center of our being sometimes. And if that is true, if at the very core of who we are is an impulse that says no one gets to tell me what to do and I don't want any limitation on my desire, then we will become people who break anything that gets in the way. We'll break rules, we'll break promises, and oftentimes we'll break relationships and people. That's what we do with this rebellious self-assertion. You guys, there's no way to have a healthy, loving relationship in, with anyone else without in some way giving up a level of your own independence. There's no way to live in a healthy, loving relationship with anyone around, anyone around you if you don't give up something. The more we love a friend, or the more we love a romantic partner, the more we love our kids, the more we will be prevented from just doing whatever we want whenever we want. Parents in the room know. You can just do whatever you want whenever you want. So this idea of transgression, this rebellious self-assertion, that's the primary reason we often find ourselves in fractured relationships, because we have this will to get what we want at the expense of others. When you look out for that, that's one of the things we need to expose and unearth, David says. But there's another word he uses here. It's the word iniquity. It's a different word. It's the Hebrew word avon, which is connected to the Hebrew word ava, which means to bend or to make crooked. So in Psalm 36, a few psalms later, the poet describes his back as being bent or crooked in some way. In Lamentations 3, a road that doesn't go straight is crooked. It's a vase. In this case, David is saying that that crookedness, that's the human tendency to go astray, to get off the path that we know leads us to life and take a path towards something else that hurts us. And what's maybe most interesting is that this aspect of our sinful condition, this aspect of our human condition in the Bible, it's sometimes intentional, but sometimes unintentional. Sometimes you just wander off the path and all of a sudden you're in the weeds and you're like, what? I don't. How did I get here? The Bible assumes that there are ways we can be crooked that we don't even realize. And anyone who's lived with another person knows this to be true. You may not think that you have a selfishness problem, but I bet your roommates know all about it. You might not think that you have a problem with anger, but I bet your spouse knows all about it. So there's transgression, but there's also iniquity. This part of our lives where we just kind of lean off the path, whether intentionally or accidentally, it happens to us together. It's the second word that David uses. But there's also a third word, and it's the word sin, which is actually different than the other two. It's the translation of the Hebrew word kata. And it literally just means to fail or miss the goal or mark. And it's not always used in moral circumstances. There's actually a way that this word is used to describe a tribe in Israel called the Benjaminites. They were so good with slingshots that the Bible says that they never hata, that is, they never miss. They never miss the goal. What David's saying here is that we, as humans, just miss the goal sometimes. Even with our best intentions, we miss the goal of loving God and loving others and loving the creation. We miss it. 
And so when we live out of self-centered posture or when we make moral decisions based on our good at the expense of others, we're failing. We're missing the goal of being human. That's all it is. And it assumes that we've been made for a purpose. The purpose is to love God. And so when we confess, the content of our confession isn't just about rules that we broke. That's really shallow. It's a really shallow way. How do we dig deeper? How do we uncover the parts of us that have maybe hung off the path in ways that we didn't sometimes even mean to? But how do we kind of uncover our self-assertion over others? How do we uncover all the ways that we've missed the mark of loving our neighbors and loving God? How are we inhibiting love of God in ourselves? That's all confessions. Truthful, honest, naming, acknowledging, uncovering the ways that we miss. And when we practice this, guys, when we actually build this into our lives, what we find is actually freedom. Freedom on the other side of our failure. The thing that hiding hasn't gotten us, freedom. The thing that neglecting or not naming our sin hasn't gotten us, naming it through confession gets us. Look at the immediate response of God to confession in verse 5. David confesses and it says, and you forgave. That's it. No hesitation. And you forgave. Confess, forgive. No consideration from God. He didn't run it by the heavenly committee and measure it out to see if it was worth forgiving. He just did. He forgave. Immediate and automatic. And look at how David describes this in verse 2. He says, blessed is the one who the Lord does not count their sin against them. Friends, our sin, our brokenness, our failures, has nothing to do with our final grade. It has nothing to do with our final reception. Every one of us in this room, will we fail? And so the answer to that failure, it comes when we confess. God simply says, you are not defined by your brokenness, which is wild and crazy. How does that work? How does God do that? And we get a hint at it in verse 7. David says, you, speaking to God, you are a hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of He's saying he no longer has to hide himself from God rose. He no longer has to cover himself from shame. Because he is now, in some remarkable way, covered in God. Hidden in God. In all his messages and brokenness, he is found, he's not rejected, he's not sent away, he's not condemned. He's accepted, he's loved, and he's honored. And he describes that profound experience of freedom, where nothing is hidden. Where he can be fully and freely himself, nothing has to be covered because God is covered him. And this psalm is an intentional hint at the ultimate expression, the ultimate manifestation of this love of God in response to us. It's the cross. Do you guys know why crucifixion was such a horrible form of execution? Because in crucifixion, you were stripped naked, uncovered. You were tied or nailed to a tree. You didn't die fast, you died slow. And you didn't die privately, you died publicly. And what that meant is that you were utterly naked, utterly exposed, utterly uncovered. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Because in becoming uncovered on the cross, Jesus took on the exposing of all of our failure and all of our brokenness and all of our sin. Jesus was uncovered so that we could be clothed in God. Jesus was uncovered so that we could be dignified and honored. That's the language that the Apostle Paul picks up on in 
New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, God made the one who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Jesus took on all our sin on the cross so that we would have the burden of it lifted from us. He exposed it all, all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our so that we wouldn't have to hide any longer. And so the weight, the burden of your sin, which causes you to hide. The weight and burden of your sin, which causes you to feel sometimes irresolvable guilt and shame. It's been lifted. It's been carried. It's been hung up on a tree, and it's been buried. And that means that on the other side of the cross is only freedom. On the other side of the cross is only being hidden in God. It's only life, not shame. It's joy and peace and contempt and love and grace. That's why David ends the psalm of confession. This whole thing about sin and confession, look how he ends in the last two verses. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice the righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Confession does not lead to the negative. It leads to the overwhelmingly joyous and positive. And so when we practice this as Christians, we do it to experience profound forgiveness. Because we know the very worst of who we are. All the things that we long to hide, we know that those can be seen, and that none of those things are stronger than the eternal love of God for us. None of those things can define us. None of them can burn us. None of us can force us into hiding because the arms of God which stretch themselves out on the tree are eternally deeper and wider than the sins of you. So this morning, I don't know where you might need to go in your head or heart. I don't know where you're at on your spiritual journey. But I do know this. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to hide it. There's true, lasting freedom. There's a way through your brokenness and sin. It doesn't lead to shame or pain or guilt or covering, but leads to profound joy and peace in life. Your biggest weakness, your deepest insecurity, your most repeated fault, that's precisely where Jesus is here to meet you and provide life and healing. That's who Jesus is. He's meeting everyone to say the simple, profound words, my beloved, I know, and you're forgiven.